Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, John the Baptist comes thundering onto the Advent scene, proclaiming a baptism for the repentance of sins. According to Matthew, his actual cry was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message Jesus himself would launch his own ministry with. John was the miracle son of the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. He was a cousin of Jesus and the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though we really don't uh, hear about him until the beginning of our New Testament. After a 400-year lull, a virtual uh, uh, silence, a time of virtual silence from God, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, his messenger walks out of the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. John knew that the people of Judea had broken their promises, they violated God's expectations, and they had engaged in all sorts of bad behavior. They desperately needed to confess their sins and receive forgiveness. And so John offered them a way, a chance to turn away from sin. That's what repent means, and turn back to God through a contrite, sorry heart and the waters of his baptism. It was a chance to clean out the clutter of sin in all its different forms, uh, lust, gluttony, greed, laziness, uh, anger, envy, and pride. An opportunity for a person to make room in their hearts and in their life for the, and in their home for Jesus. He shows up every year about this time to remind us what Advent is all about. You know, getting our hearts and, and homes prepared for Christ's coming. And you can't accept John, the cousin who accuses, without accepting Jesus, the cousin who forgives. Like law and gospel, they sort of go hand in hand all the way to the cross and the empty tomb. John's approach was confrontational. Uh, it was pointed, but there, there was no doubt about that. He, he shouted at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the church leaders of the church back then, who had made the trek out into the countryside to see him for themselves, you know, in person, maybe even to be baptized by him if they could figure out a way to work it to their own benefit. They could smell a revival in the works, and they knew it would be in their best interest to at least a appear to support it. But it was a charade John saw right through, and he called them out on it. Uh, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the key, right? John was accusing them of talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Unless they actually turned and walked in the way of God, and in doing so made room for, for the coming Messiah, he wasn't going to accept that they took his baptism seriously. Uh, they'd always pointed to their pedigree for their assurance of God's favor. They were part of God's chosen people by birth, after all. Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people, was their ancestor. But while John told them that wasn't going to work for them anymore. Children of Abraham, he said, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. And he said, uh, in a sense, you know, don't keep going back to that false hope. It's not working anymore. You're the religious leaders. You're supposed to be pointing people to the Messiah, the fulfillment of the prophecies, not plotting against him. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Repentance is the first step in getting right with God. It's a sign that the law has done its job. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of heart and a change of direction, you can see. It's so a turning away from the old life and going in an entirely new direction, one that will lead back to God. You know, faith for show, that doesn't get it. Uh, faith that works does. 
See, faith changes a person on the inside, and then it refuses to stay locked up inside. It wants to express itself. And John knew that wasn't happening with these men, these leaders. He points them to Jesus, the one who will follow, the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And for many of them, his fiery attitude got their attention. And not just the church people, the crowds as well. People in the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he says, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Luke says that even the corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized. And they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he told them, collect no more taxes than the government requires. See, it was an open secret that the tax collectors would pad the people's bills and then uh, line their pockets with the difference. Uh, they were hated for it. They were despised by the people. But the, the leaders in the government would sort of look the other way. There was nothing people could do about it. Soldiers, too, came to John and asked what they should do. They said, don't extort money. Don't make false accusations. Be content with your pay. So we know what's going on there. Great crowds sought John out along the banks of the Jordan. Lots of people went, thousands, tens of thousands, some to watch or listen, others to receive his baptism of repentance. But they discovered that baptism wasn't the end of that journey of faith. And that repentance was more than just being sorry. It's just the beginning of a process by which the Holy Spirit draws us closer to Christ by making us more and more like Christ in this life. One Paul says this morning will finally be brought to completion on the day our Lord returns. Until then, you could say you're kind of a, a work in progress, right? That's we call it sanctification. Don't, but don't confuse sanctification with salvation, God's free gift of an eternal home with him for the sake of faith in his son's work for us. By faith, we might be a masterpiece in God's eyes, and that'll get us to heaven. But as a people of God making their way through a sinful, fallen world, we're still a few brushstrokes short of where he wants us to be in this life. We're still unfinished, just like so many other masterpieces. Have you ever tried to plow through Dostoevsky's philosophical work, The Brothers Karamazov? It's very long and it's very difficult. I tried it years ago for a bedtime read, and it worked so good it kept putting me to sleep, I never did finish it. But as it turns out, neither did the author. Uh, it was supposed to be part one of an even larger work called The Life of a Great Sinner. And a few months after finishing Brothers, the author himself gave up, unfinished. You know, Mozart died while writing his Requiem. And since he received only half the payment for the composition up front, his wife tried to hire somebody else to secretly finish it so she could collect the rest of the money. Unfinished, at least by him. There's a towering cathedral in New York City called St. John the Divine. It's one of the five largest cathedrals in the world. It's the cornerstone was laid on St. John's Day, December 27th, 1892. And people have been worshiping in one part of it or another since 1899. It contains seven different chapels and the longest nave, the, the center part of the church where a congregation would sit uh, in the whole United States. But for one reason or another, 129 years later almost, this architectural wonder has never really been fully completed. And by those in the know, it's referred to as St. John the Unfinished. Uh, we hate lives in our, our projects in our life that are labeled unfinished, don't we? You know, maybe there's a, a kitchen project at your house, or maybe better yet, a, a bathroom uh, project that's been going on uh, seemingly uh, unending and forever. Uh, you know the one I mean, right? This is where you go like this to the person next to you. 
Not from as far back as 1892, of course, but might seem like it. But certainly for a long time. And dare I add in no small part because you insisted on doing it yourself. It looks so easy on YouTube. <laughs> well, that particular project might literally, legitimately be called the John Unfinished. It's more likely referred to as that project or, or that work in progress. We don't like those uncompleted things because they stand uncompleted in judgment of us, reminding us that we might, we might have uh, lots of great ideas and lots of ambition, but we're not really so good at getting things uh, accomplished. We're not good with the follow-through. And so for our purposes in this Advent season, it's one thing to have unfinished jobs around the house, but it's another thing to realize how unfinished we are as individuals. I mean, if, we're, if we were finished, we wouldn't need John to come along and yell at us every year like a Grinch trying to steal our Merry Christmas spirit, reminding us, uh, just like he reminded God's people back in the first century, how far short we fall from the goal of being the people that God wants us to be. We're still a work in progress on this side of heaven. Paul's talking about the, that this morning in his letter to the church at Philippi. You know, becoming a Christian happens the moment God brings you to saving faith. Uh, but that moment also begins a journey be becoming uh, all God wants to help you be. One, Paul says this morning, that won't be completed until the day of Jesus Christ. Talked about that last week, the day he returns. He's talking about... Uh, what we would call judgment day sometimes. The day we'll be freed from all these earthly attachments that sin sticks true like Velcro and, and we can actually be the holy God, uh, the holy people God already sees when he looks at us through the lens of his, his son's perfect life for us. Now there's some denominations that talk about uh, absolute perfection in this life, that it can be achieved, but most of them admit, I think, when pressed that... that uh, uh, you know, with the help and guidance of the Holy Spirit, you can go in the right direction, but you probably won't live a long enough, long enough life to ever accomplish it. We Lutherans would say that as long as we're in this world, we're in a continual battle with our sinful natures, that there's just no chance to be perfect this side of heaven. And that's why we needed a Savior who could be perfect and holy for us. It's a, it fits in with what Paul says today. Uh, I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In this world, it's always going to feel like we're moving you know, two steps forward and one step back. And we're headed for perfection one day, though, uh, and we look forward to that day, but we don't beat ourselves up every time we, we make a mistake and disappoint God. We might, but we get over it because those missteps always tend to lead us to the foot of the cross. In fact, he's most likely to be the one who'll pick us up and dust us off and set us back down on that road toward glory, reminding us that, that Jesus died for that too, and that our trust for salvation is rooted in his perfect life for us, not our own perfect life for him. The good we do toward him in return is often revealed in the good we do toward others, the fruits of righteousness, um, so that they might see something of Jesus in us. The completion point of the spiritual life God has adopted us into um, doesn't really come until the end of this life then we're, we're freed from, from these, these sinful bodies. It, 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 even then, it only comes with God's help. In the Philippians reading this morning, God go, or Paul goes on to say that his prayer for the believers in Philippi, he loved this church he started, is that their love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help them determine what is best, that on the day of Christ they might be filled with the fruit of righteousness, Christ's righteousness. And why? To the glory and praise of God. 
C.S. Lewis wrote about this idea of Christ bringing us to perfection. He said that when we seek Christ's help in becoming the person God wants us to be, uh, Christ doesn't settle for just giving us a little. As an illustration, Lewis points out that as a child, he, he used to get a lot of toothaches, and he knew that if he told his mother, she'd give him an aspirin to dull the pain through the night. But he wouldn't tell her until the pain got really bad because he knew that she'd also want to take him to the dentist the next day. And he didn't want to do that. He said, I wanted immediate relief from the pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling around with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. They wouldn't let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took it all. And he went on to say that Christ is like the dentist. If we ask for his help to deal with something we're, we're ashamed about or something that's spoiling our life, he'll give it. But he won't stop there because he wants to make us perfect. Lewis pictured Christ saying, make no mistake, if you let me, I'll make you perfect. I'll never rest until you are literally perfect, until my father can say without reservation that he's well-pleased with you as he is well-pleased with me. You know, he's saying that if you give Christ an inch, he'll take it all. In this season of preparation for Advent, for Christ's coming during this Advent, uh, his first coming and his last coming, uh, are you prepared for that? Advent from out there can seem like nothing more than a time we spend being prepared for the holidays, right? The shopping, the baking, the decorating, the, the hanging lights. But in here, we're reminded that it's really about taking time to prepare for Jesus and that we're probably ne not nearly as prepared as we'd like to think. If we allow him, if we give him the time, he'll get us ready, not only for his second coming, he'll get us all ready to celebrate his first, joyfully ready to to, for the Jesus all wrapped up in swaddling clothes as well as the Jesus unwrapped and crowned. True God, but also true man who will all grown up, crucified, risen, and ascended return one day to straighten out this, this mess we've made of things once and for all. That's the root of John's message today and Paul's too. Thinking about you know, what you might need to take care of in your own life so that you're ready. You know, so that when the one who is coming shows up, he'll have a home waiting at your home, so that you'll have room in your heart this year for Jesus. Let me explain with a little story. On Christmas Day, a small manger scene sat inside on a table just inside the living room doorway of a neatly kept house. Family members hurried past it all day long, barely noticing the tiny figures gathered around the, the infant tucked into golden straw. In the morning, the children raced by it on their way to the Christmas tree. At noon, arriving guests pushed past, one accidentally knocking over a shepherd when he took off his winter coat. Later in the afternoon, the well-fed assembly of adults and children moved a little more slowly now past that manger once again as they drifted from the dining room back into the living room. Almost none of them stopped to look at the manger. In fact, only two people even noticed it. An older woman walking with a cane paused in front of the scene. She gently stood the shepherd back upright and then she looked and saw that, uh, I looked at the child in the middle of the figures. And it wasn't long before she realized that her young, young great-grandson was standing by her side. As the voices drifted out from the living room, the two continued to look deeply at the scene. At length, a smile spread across the woman's face. The child took her hand, and he smiled too. In the midst of a day filled with so much busyness, the two of them quietly received God's gift. 
That's how the real Christmas can enter our lives. Not always in great leaps, but in quiet moments we can miss if we're not prepared. Maybe there's someone you've been meaning to reach out to, to make amends to, a bad habit you've been meaning to walk away from and leave in your past, or rearranging your life so you have time to attend a Bible study or visit a shut-in, and it keeps nagging at you and nagging at you from somewhere in the back of your mind, and, and it won't go away. And if you listen to our lessons clearly, then you may have heard John saying that it's time to deal with whatever it's been that's been cluttering, whatever it might be, that's been cluttering up your life, that's been filling your mind like a, like a hoarder who can barely make it from one end of the house to the other, crowding out the spirit. You know, deal with those things now because Jesus is coming and it's past time to get ready. Think of Paul's words that, that you're a work in progress, an unfinished masterpiece as a loving reminder to get your life back on track. After all, what better gift could you offer the Christ child than a new you? Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts, your minds, through Christ Jesus. Amen.